Good morning. Lord, I need you. How true are those words, right? No matter what uh, political persuasions we are. Um, Two scripture readings this morning. The first is comprised of selections from the Old Testament. The Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. He enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. That means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. You have brought your judgment days near and have come to your years of punishment because the foreign resident is exploited within you. The fatherless and widow are oppressed in you. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This morning we're taking a break from our series uh, to talk about what the Christian response should be to kind of current events. Uh, And more than just the Christian response or the Christian view or Christian actions, also the Christian tone and the Christian demeanor. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what are the things that all Christians must agree upon, the things we have to be united about, and then also talk about what are the things that we we have to allow each other to disagree on as Christians. So if we don't let each other disagree on certain things, then we won't be able to agree on the stuff that we have to agree about. But there are some things that we do have to agree about, that we have to be united about. And if we let each other disagree on the stuff that we're allowed to disagree about. And if we all get united around the stuff, we all get on board around the stuff that we all have to agree about as Christians, then we can maintain unity in the church. Because this election is tearing families apart, it's tearing friendships apart, and I'm not going to let it tear this church apart. And the, the way to prevent against that is to, to all get on the same page. So we're going to try to do that this morning. Uh, just as I'm going to be calling for us to extend grace to one another, I ask you to extend grace to me. 
I finished the first draft of the sermon uh, on Friday night, and I felt pretty good about it, except that it was 90 minutes long. <laughs> I wrote three whole sermons. Uh, so I thought, well, we could do a series, but I decided against that, and so I've been trying to cut it since then. I was trying to cut it by two-thirds. I, I did not finish cutting it. I cut it by about half, so it's going to be up about 45 minutes this morning, a sermon and a half. Blaise Pascal said one time, thank you, yeah, thanks for the support. Yeah, um, yeah. Blaise Pascal said once, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one, and that's what happened here. I ran out of time. Uh, and also, Grace, just because I was rewriting up until 1029, um, so, you know, there's, if, if there's something that, that you felt like should have been said, it probably was in the first draft. Um, and I can, can show you my notes. Anyway, uh, four points, points one, two, and four are the things that Christians have to agree about. All Christians, regardless of politics, have to agree about these, these three things, one, two, and four. And then point three is going to be about where we have to be able to disagree as Christians. So first point number one. Uh, I think we have these. Do we have these? Nice, we do. So first point, if you're a Christian, you must come to the defense and assistance of refugees. If you're a Christian, you must come to the defense, you must come to the defense and assistance of refugees. Now, what does that mean? What it doesn't mean is it, it doesn't mean necessarily anything in terms of your politics. It doesn't mean that you have to be protesting. It doesn't mean that you have to be opposed to the current administration. Uh, and we're going to explain why that is, why it doesn't necessarily mean that in point three. So what does it mean, then, to come to the assistance and the defense of refugees? Well, before we get to that, we're going to get to that, but before we get to the, the how and the what and the practicalities, let's just remind ourselves of the why. Why does every Christian have to do this? And the answer is just because of the God we worship. This just because this is something that he cares about. You heard this in the passage that you just heard read. Just this constant drumbeat all throughout the, the Bible. God just says, I want you to do this. I want you to care about immigrants and refugees. And it, what they are is essentially a, a protected, privileged class, which you see over and over again in Scripture. You know, as Americans, we think everything should be equal and God should treat everybody equally. Well, that's not the sense you get when you read the Bible. And you think, well, that's not fair. Well, we're not talking about fair. We're talking about God. And God cares about some people more than others. So he cares about the poor, for example, more than the rich. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty straightforward. It also says that God cares more about people who have made really bad choices and completely screwed up their lives than he does about people who have made all the right choices and have everything put together. Jesus says there is more rejoicing, more rejoicing over one unrighteous person who repents than over 99 righteous people that never needed to repent. Well, that means God is a hundred times more interested and concerned with the unrighteous person than the righteous. That's pretty interesting and pretty unfair. So the unrighteous are this privileged group that gets special attention. The poor are this privileged group that get God's special attention. And what you saw in that passage earlier is that there's this group that's mentioned over and over again, including three different subgroups, but they're always mentioned together, widows, widows orphans, and immigrants. And the, the 
deal there is, these are people that have had bad luck. Something happened in their life, and now they're especially vulnerable. It's particularly economically vulnerable. The fact that immigrants are mentioned alongside with widows and orphans shows us what type of immigrants God has in mind here. So in this day and age, you didn't move just for the heck of it, just for adventure. You moved because there was a famine in your land, and if you didn't move, you were going to die. So it's not talking about like if somebody moves from New York to London for work, you know, like, oh, they're an immigrant. God cares about them (laughs) extra. What it's talking about is basically what we would call today refugees. These people where they didn't have a choice. They had to move. And the reason God cares about all these groups more than other groups is because the brokenness of the world does not fall on everybody equally. So the, the world's broken for everybody. Guess what? It's a lot more broken for the poor. It's a lot more broken for the unrighteous. It's a lot more broken for the widow and the orphan and the refugee. And it's not their fault. You know, with the unrighteous person, you could say, well, they made the bad decisions. Well, even that, you know, that's a discussion for another time. But with a refugee, I mean, it's, it's not their fault that there's a famine in their country. It's not their fault that a civil war breaks out in their country and not yours. And that's not fair. And so God says, you have to give these people special treatment. You have to give these people special protection. So that's the why of it. Just because of the God you worship. It's not a human rights issue. It's not, you know, because there's the United Nations declaration. It's just because if you worship this God, he's got quirky tastes. He's got things that he cares about. And so it's, well, that's my God, so that's how I have to be. It's like a kid who says, like, yeah, I just wear these clothes because my mom makes me. You know, like, I, I don't have a choice. It's just the family I come from. Now, what about the how? The how and the what? What does every Christian have to do? I said it's not about politics, which we'll get to later on. So what is it about? What does every Christian have to do? Three things, three, three ways you can take action. But before that, let me say something about the heart piece. Because regardless of your politics, what, what it means is if you're a Christian, your heart has to be especially connected to the refugee and immigrant experience. You have, to, you have to really feel for these people. On Sunday night, there was a uh, protest going by our house, like five feet from our front door. And so we decided to take the girls down to uh, see it, mostly just for the spectacle, you know, because it was like a cool New York City moment. I hadn't been reading the news the whole weekend. I was not emotionally invested in this issue. Uh, I, I wasn't even in a serious frame of mind. We had I'd spent the off- afternoon, we had been watching uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. The girls had been explaining them, uh, educating them about words from the 80s, like tubular. So I was not in a serious frame of mind at all. And we walked downstairs, and I put them on my shoulders, and I'm reading them the, the signs. You know, well, what did the signs say? I'm reading them aloud, you know, signs like, Muslims are welcome here. And I couldn't read the signs without breaking down, without my voice breaking. And I'm not into protests. You know, I'm not, I don't believe in protests even. I saw that as a very positive sign for me spiritually. I saw that as a sign of God's working in my life. That me, as a person who's not particularly compassionate, would have that involuntary emotional response. So that's the first piece, is, is the emotional piece. But in terms of action, there are three ways. Three, three ways to 
get involved, three things you can do, and these are not uh, original. These are the kind of the stock answers, but they're still the right answers. The first thing you can do is serve or volunteer. So right after the service today, Rebecca Iwerks, a member from our church, is going to be hosting a meeting right down front here for anybody who would like to get involved in serving or volunteering to assist refugees. The second thing you can do is give. And if the great thing about this is you all have already done it. You know, we've talked about this $2.7 million that's been given to LMCC. As you know, a big chunk of that goes right outside the door to these privileged groups that God cares about, the poor. And this year, in particular, we're going to be looking for nonpartisan groups that assist refugees. So your money that you've given is already going to those causes, and if you want to give more, great. Now, as you know, as we talked about many times before, I'm very touchy about this idea that somehow giving is less than. It's less than volunteering. Because actually, it's usually a lot more efficient than volunteering. And your money, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And your money represents your time and your energy and your life. So don't let anybody say, oh, all you did was write a check. That's not enough. No. If you talk to the directors of these organizations... What most of them will say, if they're being honest, and you ask them, would you rather have volunteers, would you rather have money, they're going to say money, because they can do a lot more with the money. So giving is every bit as good as volunteering. The third thing you can do is obviously pray. You stand with these people by praying for them, by going to God on their behalf, and by doing that, you align yourself with them. So that's the first point. If you're a Christian, you must come to the defense and assistance of refugees And immigrants, you have to, and that's a matter of your heart and your emotion and a matter of these individual actions that you take. Point number two. If you're a Christian, you must be especially sensitive to racism and especially enthusiastic about diversity. If you're a Christian, you must be especially sensitive to racism and especially enthusiastic about diversity. And the rationale is the same here as it was in point one, which is just because of the God you worship, just because this is something that he cares about. So the attitude that all Christians need to repent of, myself included, because this is an attitude that I've had in the past, is this attitude of, you know, uh, race isn't that big a deal. Racism is sort of overblown, sort of exaggerated. It's this political correctness thing. Why are we talking about it all the time? It'd be better if we just all tried to be colorblind and stop talking about race and just tried to treat everybody equally as human beings. Why is that attitude out of bounds for Christians? Because that's not the attitude the Bible has. The Bible is talking about race constantly. It's one of the main themes of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. If you don't look at the Bible through the lens of race, you will miss a huge chunk of what's going on. It never glosses over these racial differences. It never glosses over racial hostilities. In fact, one of the main narrative arcs of the Bible is this move from Genesis 11 to Revelation 5. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, what you have is all peoples, all races scattered because of sin, separated. In Revelation 5, what you have is all peoples brought together. Every tribe, tongue, nation, language brought together around the throne of Christ. And the story of the Bible is the story of that happening. God bringing all races back together again. At the end of time, 
It's not going to be like we don't see race. It's not going to be like there is no such thing as race and we're all just human beings. Rather, it's all human beings together because God likes the diversity. Diversity isn't an issue of political correctness. It's an issue of theological correctness, an issue of spiritual correctness. It's just God's aesthetic tastes. He likes mixed-race churches better than he likes single-race churches. He likes mixed-race countries better than he likes single-race countries. I would even say he's partial to mixed-race families over single-race families. He just likes it. That's why he made us all different. He likes it. And this, this arc, this move from everybody being separated to everybody being put back together again at the end, well, who are they gathered around? Jesus. And what Scripture says in that second passage you heard read this morning, this remarkable passage, It says in Ephesians 2 that one of the main reasons Jesus came to die is to break down the wall of racial hostility. That was one of the main points of him going to the cross. That's what Paul says. So a couple takeaways from that. One, racial reconciliation is not going to be possible aside from Christ. If it was, then Jesus wasn't going to have to come and die. If we could do it on our own, then why did he come and die for it? But the second thing is, if, if it's a big enough deal for Jesus to come and die for, it's a pretty big deal. It's, it's not something that you can dismiss. So uh, what, what that means, that's the why. Same as the why on point number one, just because it's something God cares about. What does it mean in terms of actions for Christians? What it means is, again, sensitive and enthusiastic. So it's a matter of your tone, it's a matter of the things you say, it's a matter of reaching out, it's a matter of taking the initiative, it's a matter of listening, it's a matter of being empathetic, it's a matter of asking questions and being compassionate. The reason we're talking about this right now is because racial tension is obviously at a, at a high right now, the highest it's been maybe in 30 or 40 years. Now, it, that doesn't mean, so it, it was the the executive order on Friday racist? Not necessarily. We're going to get to that. Is the, is the president especially racist? Not necessarily. Are people who voted for the president especially racist? Of course not. All those caveats aside, what nobody can deny is that since the election, people of color in this country have felt alienated, have felt on edge, have felt Afraid, have felt not at home in their own country, have felt hurt by the tone and the policies and some of the rhetoric of the new administration, both on the campaign and since taking office. So as a Christian, whether you, you voted for him or not, whether you support the policies or not, it means you have to be especially sensitive to and acknowledge and legitimize that collateral damage because it's real it's real and if you act like it's not real then you're saying that this thing that's important to god isn't important to you i want to read you two testimonies about this the first is from a guy uh who works for the new york times he this was an open letter that he published in the new york times to this stranger that he had had this encounter with on the street he mentions church in the article and I happen to know that the church he's referring to is Redeemer Presbyterian, which is the church that I respect most in the city, the church that uh, we've patterned LMCC after more than any other church, and actually quite conservative church by most measures. So the guy says this, 
he says, maybe I should have let it go, turn the other cheek. We had just gotten out of church. You were in a rush. Again, he's writing to this woman. You were in a rush. It was raining. Our stroller and a gaggle of Asians were in your way. But I was honestly stunned when you yelled at us from down the block, go back to China. I hesitated for a second and then sprinted to confront you. That must have startled you. You pulled out your iPhone and threatened to call the cops. It was comical in retrospect. You might have been charged instead, especially after I walked away and you screamed, go back to your fucking country. I was born in this country, I yelled back. It felt silly, but how else to prove I belonged? This was not my first encounter with racist insults, but for some reason, and yes, it probably has to do with the political climate right now, this time felt different. Maybe you don't know this, but the insults you hold at my family get to the heart of the Asian American experience. It's this persistent sense of otherness that a lot of us struggle with every day. That no matter what we do, how successful we are, what friends we make, we don't belong. We're foreign. We're not American. And I wonder if that feeling will ever go away. More importantly, I wonder whether my two daughters who were with me today will always feel that way too. Afterward, my seven-year-old, who witnessed the whole thing, kept asking my wife, why did she say go back to China? We're not from China. No, we're not. We're from America, she told my daughter. But sometimes people don't understand that. And then I want to read you a second testimony. This one is from a member of our church, a member here at LMCC. And she wrote this. The morning after the election... I woke up with this strange sense of sadness that I had not anticipated. I cried all day. Even as I was crying, it seemed so silly. Why was I so upset about who becomes president of the United States? I'd never been that interested in politics. As a Christian, I was probably more conservative than liberal in my core beliefs. So what were these tears about? I later realized that the tears were for my daughter. When the election results came out, for the first time in my life, I saw that it wouldn't matter that my daughter was born in Manhattan or that she will probably live in this country for the rest of her life as a non-white person, no matter how hard she works, how educated she is, how well-spoken she is, she will always be considered an outsider, or even worse, less than to many in this country. I couldn't stop imagining a nightmare scenario in my head. I'm at Whole Foods, and a lady comes over to ask if the child in the stroller is mine. Just when I think she's about to compliment how cute my daughter is, she says, I don't want to pay for your child with my taxes. Go back to your own country. My daughter would look wide-eyed with her gorgeous eyes at that lady, innocently munching on her Cheerios. The reason I feared this scenario was because it actually happened to a friend of mine two weeks before the election The only difference is that she was eight months pregnant and the comment was made with respect to the child in her womb. So, obviously everybody's heartbroken by those stories. But the question is, as as a white person, what's your response? And what your response cannot be is, well, that doesn't have to do with the election. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened, I'm sorry, those things are terrible, but that's not related to the election. Well, if they feel it's related to the election, guess what? It's related to the election. 
Now, it doesn't mean you have to apologize for your vote. It does mean you have to reach out on this issue and apologize about this issue and do whatever you can to contain the collateral damage. And now, sorry, apologies for all the the reading, but I want to read you something else. I want to read you an exchange that happened at our church, a model of how this is supposed to work between somebody that voted for, for Trump and somebody who's not white, who was deeply saddened by, by Trump's election. So I reached out to a number of folks within the church this week to get their take, especially folks of color. And uh, one person said this to me. They said, I'm going to forward you an email exchange. And they obviously got the other person's permission between myself and another LMCC member because I think it exemplifies the goal. The other person had made their support for Trump known early on post-election. They reached out to us with an offer to talk. At the time, I was completely against the idea because I refused to console anyone who wanted to retain their friends of color while voting for candidates that harm the well-being of people of color. But this person broke through with persistent sincerity. We are never going to agree on politics, but we found a way forward despite that. So here's the email from the Trump supporter. They said, I know the election results and the fact that I voted for Trump were very hard things for you to hear. Talking to you was really helpful to me because I was able to better understand why. I'm really sorry the election has resulted in so much pain for you. I have to say that as a white person, I didn't understand the deep impact it has on people of color. You helped me understand that when we spoke. I love you guys, and I'm so sorry that this is the sad reality you're facing. I never want anything hurtful to happen to you because I care about you both. When I hear the violence and hate that has been unleashed as a result of Trump winning, it makes me sick to my stomach when I voted for him. That's certainly not what I was voting for. I can honestly say I didn't realize the negative racial consequences that would happen. I've also been very disappointed in his lack of quickly and adamantly putting down the hatefulness. Bottom line of this email is to tell you guys how much I care about you, how sorry I am. The election is causing you so much pain. And then the other person said this back in response. You don't owe us or anyone else an explanation about your vote. We need to be in community with people who can offer us alternative perspectives on issues where we feel most certain for it helps us to grow, to engage in healthy dialogue. But if we're going to be real friends beyond surface hellos and goodbyes, and I need you to, I need to know that you get it, that you understand where I'm coming from. And from your email, it sounds like you do. Sometimes acknowledging a person's concerns or at least empathizing with them works wonders. I wish more people that I have spoken to had offered the same respectful listening ear that you have. And that's how it's done. That's how it's done. By, by any normal rule, these are two people that should not be friends anymore. But because the one person reaches out and legitimizes the pain, and because the other person is able to accept that apology without demanding that they recant their vote, because of that maturity and understanding on both sides, a friendship is saved and unity in the church is maintained. That's how you do it. Now, one last word on this before we go on to the the next point, which I've gone back and forth about whether I should say because it's a little bit, uh, I I feel a little bit self-righteous about saying this, it's going to make me sound kind of moralistic and like out of touch and like an old fuddy-duddy. Um, nothing makes you sound like an old fuddy-duddy more than saying old fuddy-duddy. Um, you know, kind of tisk tisk, 
And so if this rubs you the wrong way, fine, discard it, because this is an opinion. This is, I don't have a verse on this. This is an opinion, but as your pastor, it's something I feel compelled to, to say. When I spoke to the, the Trump supporter uh, in that exchange, what they said was that the, the whole exchange started because of a comment on social media, and they said, if we had continued to go back and forth on social media, instead of me picking up the phone, I do not think we would be friends today. So what I want to say is, I don't see the value. I do not see the value in posting anything political, any commentary, any opinion on social media. I do see how it makes you feel better to get it off your chest. I don't see how it helps anyone. And I don't see how it furthers your cause. I do see how it hurts relationships. There's this verse in uh, the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, actually, where Jesus says, don't give to God, or don't give to dogs, don't give to dogs what is sacred, don't throw your pearls before swine. If you do, they will trample them underfoot and then turn and attack you. So what's the takeaway there? The takeaway is, it doesn't matter how brilliant your idea is. It doesn't matter if it is God's sacred truth. It doesn't matter if it is this pearl of wisdom that everybody needs to hear. When you post it on social media, the people that need to hear it aren't going to hear it. All they're going to do is trample it underfoot and then turn and attack you. Paul says, only speak, only speak what is beneficial to those who hear. You say, well, this would be beneficial. They need to hear this. Well, they're not hearing it. They're not being challenged by it. All it's doing is increasing division. So if you want to challenge somebody, if you want to confront somebody, the only way to do that is in a one-on-one conversation. But posting things isn't getting the job done, especially when it comes to this issue of race. So that's point number two. All Christians, all Christians, regardless of your politics, have to be especially sensitive to racism, especially enthusiastic about diversity, especially right now because of how much people are hurting. Point number three, and here there's a little bit of a shift. Point number three, as Christians, we must be able to disagree about politics. As Christians, we must, we must be able to disagree about politics. So uh, I want this church to be, best case scenario, I don't know what it is, best case scenario would be half Democrat, half Republican. It breaks my heart that 80% of evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump. It kills me. But it would also break my heart if 80% had voted for Clinton. Because politics isn't simple. And for Christians to vote in a block for anybody is a real problem. So what I want to do in this third section is answer a real question that I've received lots of times. This is actual from the audience, which is... How can a Christian, how could a Christian vote for Donald Trump? Explain that to me. Now, the irony of this question is that in every other church in the country, people are asking, how could a Christian vote for Hillary Clinton? You know, this is the funny thing about being in New York. So in other churches, you know, Democrats are this persecuted minority that I would feel like I needed to defend. And here it's the reverse. So how could, how could a Christian vote for Donald Trump? The way I want to get into this is by explaining to you how I vote for president and then explaining why the way I vote for president is really stupid and immature. 
And I just realized this this week. So to, to, in my defense, what I'm about to share with you, uh, it's very embarrassing. You know, a lot of you are going to think, how can I trust him after he, he just <laughs> shared this? Um, I didn't realize this beforehand. If I would realized this beforehand, I w- probably would have changed. But looking back in, in retrospect, I realize this is what I do. And what I, what, the way I voted for president is I voted based on the four C's. Now, I, I came up with this myself, which is the first sign of trouble. So the four C's are um, character, competency, charisma, and Christianity. Character, competency, charisma, and Christianity. And basically grade the candidates according to those four categories. Again, all subconsciously. So, for example, in, in uh, 2004, I voted for Bush over Kerry because I just didn't think Kerry was a good guy. I thought there were serious character issues, and I, I, thought, I thought Bush had more charisma, and he was a lot stronger Christian, obviously. In 2012, I voted for Obama over Romney. But they're both great character, obviously, uh, both devout in their faith, uh, on competency, you could make arguments on, on either side. And so what it really came down to was an issue of charisma. I felt like Obama was a lot more authentic, like I, I trusted him more, and I felt like Romney was kind of fake and stilted and salesman-like. So in, in 2016, um, Clinton is obviously off the charts when it comes to competency. And I, in my book, she got really low marks when it came to character and charisma, and Christianity. Well, the only problem was the other guy <laughs> couldn't have scored lower in, in all of those categories. I mean, you can argue that he actually has an insane amount of charisma in a certain way. But in terms of, in terms of competency, and character, and Christianity, this is by far the least Christian the least honorable, the least qualified person that's ever run for president on a major party ticket. So because of that, I voted for Clinton. And like a lot of people I know that voted for Clinton, this was Trump was the only conceivable candidate that would have made me vote for Clinton. Because she scored so low on my scorecard, almost anybody else I would have voted for instead of Clinton. That's how I vote. Now, let me tell you why that's so dumb. Why that is just the worst possible way to make this decision. What you didn't hear in any of that analysis was any discussion of principles and political philosophy. It's all about the person themselves. And other swing voters that I know, like me, you know, we pride ourselves on, oh, well, you know, we're not beholden to a party you know, we don't, we, we just vote for the right person, you know, we're, we're above all that. Like, it's a source of pride, when really, in a lot of ways, it's just a source of immaturity and inconsistency, because people that vote party line, people that always vote for the candidate of their party, they're not necessarily doing it out of laziness, or out of prejudice, they're doing it out of this mature, considered position of, I believe in these principles, so before you ask, how could a Christian vote for Trump, you have to ask, is it possible for a Christian to be a Republican? And the answer to that is emphatically yes. If you hesitate for even a second on that question, there's a major issue. Just like if you hesitate for even a second on the question of, can a Christian be a Democrat, there's a major, major issue. 
Can a Christian be a Republican? The, the answer is emphatically yes. We'll get to, to why in just a second. So if a Christian can be a Republican, the, the, the question is, can a principled Republican, a person who believes in the principles of the Republican Party, that they're better principles, which we've already acknowledged a Christian can say, can that person vote for Trump? And the answer is yes, because despite the character and competency and Christianity issues, it's still the case that he's going to be a lot closer to conservative ideals, despite the fact that he, his conservative credentials were, were questioned. He's still a lot closer, a lot closer to conservative principles than Hillary would have been. So it is entirely consistent and even arguably mature for a principled Republican to hold their nose and vote according to their principles. So and the contrast couldn't be any more stark because we went overnight from an administration led by this brilliant, chivalrous, eloquent, deeply Christian, deeply moral man with a beautiful family to this crude, profane, chauvinistic, deeply amoral, deeply a-religious man with a really messed up family. That in and of itself does not mean that the first guy was right and the second guy is wrong. It's not that simple. The world is not that simple. And to show you what I mean, I want to go to a verse, something that Jesus says, which to me is a remarkable verse. This is something he says to his disciples when he's sending them out into the world for the first time. And what he says is, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What's he talking about? Four animals in that passage. Sheep, wolves, uh, doves, and serpents. So the first part about sheep and wolves, he said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. In other words, what, what do wolves do to sheep? They eat them. And so he's saying the world is full of a lot of bad people, a lot of dangerous people. The world is a very dangerous place. He doesn't make this mistake that some people make of saying, well, people at heart are basically good, and in our policies we need to appeal to the goodness in people. Jesus doesn't think that. In fact, in John 2, it specifically says, Jesus didn't trust anybody because he knew it was in their hearts. So he says to his disciples, I'm sending you out of sheep among wolves. Well, what does that mean? If you're going to live in this world full of wolves, what does that mean? He says two things. I want you to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now, here's what's so remarkable to me about this statement. Innocent as doves. What is that referring to? That's referring to moral purity. You're innocent as a dove if you do the right thing, if you act according to your conscience, if you do what you know is right. And what Jesus says is, that's not enough. It's not enough to do what's right. It's not enough to follow your conscience. You also have to be as wise as a serpent, as wise as a serpent, cunning, savvy. What's wisdom? There's a whole book of the Bible on wisdom. And what it's based on is experience. It's written from an older man to a younger man. And he's saying this is the way the world really works. Wisdom is separate from conscience. It's separate from your heart. 
if conscience was enough, if we could all just do the right thing in every case, we wouldn't need wisdom because we just listen to our conscience and do whatever it tells us to do. It's not enough. It's not enough to follow your heart. It's not enough to do what your heart tells you to do. That's what the culture says. The culture says, follow your heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but ends in death. In other words, I tried to do the right thing. It seemed right to me, and somebody died. Somebody got hurt. This is where the principal Republicans that I know are coming from is there's this policy that seems right, but what are the outcomes? How does it work out? What's the net effect? Yes, the heart is in the right place, but what does it accomplish? Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to be a Republican because of this. You know, we can disagree about that. That's the point. Everybody has to disagree and debate this point. So maybe as a Democrat, you think, no, this policy works, and therefore we should support it. But you have to respect the the Republican who's, who is just trying to be wise. They're trying to take the analysis one step further and say, my heart is with you, but is that the right thing in terms of consequences? This last week, I had an experience that uh, most of you have almost every week. I have almost every week where I was walking somewhere and a woman approached me uh, with a kid next to her. She says, can I, can I ask you something? So I said, sure. And so she shared this whole long story. Um, I won't go into all the details, but about how she'd ended up in the situation she's in. And I'm not asking you for money, but we were outside the front of a pizza place. Would you just buy me and my son a pizza? And I said what I always say. I said, no. I said, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Now, what does that mean about me? Does that mean that I'm this cold-hearted person that, that hates her and doesn't care about the things that God cares about? Maybe, maybe you think that. But the truth is, what did my heart want to do? I would have loved to buy her that pizza because that would have felt great to me. There's nothing I would have rather done than buy her that pizza and be done with it. But wisdom, in, in my estimation, and you can disagree, but wisdom, in my estimation, says that that's not the right thing to do, even though it feels right, even though that's what my conscience and my heart tell me I should do in that moment. The second step of analysis says it's not the right thing to do, and I could get a whole panel of directors of homeless organizations up here, bleeding heart liberals, who would back me up and and explain to you all the reasons why. And again, I'm not saying we can't disagree. If you want to buy her the pizza, fine. But don't judge my motives because I didn't. Just because I went through two steps of analysis and you only went through one, I'm not going to judge you for buying the pizza because I understand why you did it. But you need to understand why I didn't do it. And that's how a person can oppose government policies that are aimed at helping the poor, can oppose government policies that are aimed at helping refugees, can oppose government policies that are aimed at helping these groups that God clearly wants helped because they think those policies at the end of the day aren't wise and don't work. And the way you can tell whether it's based on wisdom or whether it's based on a depraved heart is what they do with their individual lives. Because a lot of the Republicans I know vote for lower taxes and then give away 10 times more than they would ever pay in taxes under whatever administration. That's what it comes down to, is individual level. It comes down to this this difference between the government and the church. 
it is legitimate for a Christian to say, I don't think that's the government's role to do that. I think that's the church's role to do that. Fine, but then the onus is on you to back that up. And the reason we're in this mess to begin with is because the church abdicated its responsibility. If the church had taken care of the poor, like the Bible says we're supposed to, well, then you wouldn't have to have welfare and you wouldn't have any of these debates or anything else. So the onus, it's, it's absolutely legitimate for a person to vote for these policies or these candidates that seem on the surface opposed to Christian principles. But then the onus is on those individuals to, to back that up with individual action. So you, going back to the last two points, you can vote for the current administration and you can support the policies of the current administration. You do not have to apologize so long as you're reaching out, so long as you're acknowledging the collateral damage. It's like somebody who is in favor of a war, but then is absolutely heartbroken by all the soldiers that are dying and is doing everything they can to donate and to serve, to to support the pain of that. And you can't be in this position of being defensive about, you know, feeling guilty for your vote. And so I'm not going to acknowledge the pain and the fallout and the collateral damage because the collateral damage is real. And that's what you saw in that email is both sides refusing to demand something from the other side that they shouldn't demand. The, the person didn't demand that the, the other person recant their vote for Trump. But on the other hand, the, the, the person who supported Trump was not defensive and acknowledged the pain and the fallout. So that's the third thing. As Christians, we must be able to disagree about politics. We have to be able to disagree about politics. Number four, and this is the last thing, and not as long on this, this will be shorter. Just a little tag at the end. As Christians, we must be able to agree that politics isn't what's most important. As Christians, we must be able to agree that politics isn't what's most important. Now, this is a note that I've hit before, so I'm not going to hit it as hard uh, this time. You know, in both of the politics sermons this fall, I talked about don't put your trust in princes. You know, God is ultimately the one we're supposed to trust in. I talked about how Jesus is the one that at the end of time is, is the big deal, not any politician. What I didn't like about that this fall is I didn't like that I felt like there was almost this tone of, you know, minimizing people's pain. Like, don't worry, God's in control, so none of this matters. That's not what I meant. You know, that's like saying to a to somebody who loses a child in a car accident, well, you know, God's going to work it all together for good. Well, that's not, that's not the right thing to say. Whether it's true or not, it's not the right thing to say. So I apologize for that because I didn't mean to minimize the pain and I didn't mean to act like these aren't real issues that Christians should be involved in because they are. But having said that and having talked about the, Christ, the actions that all Christians have to take, I still think there's the kernel of truth in that previous point this still needs to be made, which is, at the end of the day, what happens to America and what happens in terms of politics isn't what we as Christians should care most about. We should care, we should have opinions, we should be involved, but it has to be one level down on the, on the priority sheet. There was a survey just a couple weeks ago that showed that today people would be more upset about their child. Parents would be more upset about their child marrying somebody from the opposite political party than they would about their child marrying somebody from a different religious faith. In other words, politics runs thicker than faith for a lot of people today. And that can't be the case at this church. We have to realize that it's as important as it is 
it's secondary. And as important as the physical needs of people are, as much as the church is called to care for people's physical needs, to feed the hungry, to protect the refugee, at the end of the day, those needs are really inconsequential compared to people's spiritual needs. And it's the spiritual needs more than anything else that we need to be praying about and focused upon. One last testament. I want to read you one last thing that somebody in our church says, and we'll close with this. They said, I've been an immigrant most of my life. I lived in Canada for five years while seeking citizenship status, then moved to the U.S. shortly afterwards, and I've been living here on a green card. My experience in no way compares to the instability of most immigrants around the world, but it's the only frame of reference I have to relate I spent a good many hours waiting in customs and immigration offices a few times with the fear of being trapped inside a country or refused entry to return home. Once, when I forgot my green card, I was stuck in a small room being grilled by a border agent until I agreed to pay a lot of money for him to type my name in a computer system. Everything about the situation, the financial burden, the feeling of being an outsider, the aggressiveness reminded me that my life could literally change in the drop of a dime. Today, our current political climate is similar. The political status of a lot of people experienced a somewhat abrupt fall. Trump's executive order reminds me that, in so many ways, I am not in control of my own life. Things change quickly. Even though I know my residency isn't in danger, there's so much fear that comes with that realization of not being in control. Accompanied by the feeling that I think all immigrants experience the feeling of being trapped in the space between two places, neither of which are truly home. For me, only Christianity has answered this problem, the feeling of losing control and of lacking the nurture of a true home. My relationship with God has been the only thing that made me feel like I have a real home and will be okay relinquishing control. I guess what I'm trying to say is that as liberals... We can get on our high horse and pontificate about how clearly wrong these policies are, and we assume that the immigrants directly affected feel the same way, but I don't really think they do. I don't think they're worried about the moral rightness of the policies. I think they're just fearful about losing control of their lives and about losing a home that never felt fully complete, only to return to another one that was never truly right. For me, there is so much opportunity in that moment. That's the moment that led me to Christ. I wonder how, as Christians, we can be a testament to what Christ can do without feeling of fear and loss. Pretty profound statement. And it's not to say that the pain and loss is a good thing. It's not to say that Christians shouldn't be trying to minimize the pain and loss, or that we should be, you know, we don't care because God's going to use it for good. But the point is, God does use it for good. And the reason these groups are closer to God's heart that we talked about these privileged groups is because they feel the need of him more. They feel the need of him more than those of us who have our lives all put together. And that's a good thing because all of us would go through our lives without any thought of God until everything falls apart. So that's an opportunity for Christians serving people who are going through a hard time. There is nothing wrong with Christians serving with deeply ulterior motives of wanting to help this person only because they want to introduce them to Christ. But it's also a reminder for each of us of sitting in security. How much has my security jeopardized my relationship with God? And the beautiful thing is, 
If, like me, you're not part of any of these privileged classes, if you're rich and you're white and you're male and you've got your life together and you haven't made a bunch of big moral mistakes, if you don't get included in any of these groups that God cares about and are closer to God's heart, the good news is you can change that by aligning yourself with those groups, by caring about those groups, by joining with those groups. You can be kind of like a, an honorary member, but you have to make that step. If you want to be close to God's heart, you have to get close to the people that he cares about. Let's pray. Father, I, help, I ask that you'd help us to, to think about these things carefully. I ask that you would give us a sense of your heart for justice and for what's right, that you would give us sensitive hearts, soft hearts, and sensitive consciences, but that at the same time, I ask you'd make us wise, wise as serpents. I ask that you'd teach us from the experiences of the past. I ask that you'd help us to have at least two levels of reasoning and consideration. I want to thank you for the reconciliation that's already happened in this church. I want to ask that further reconciliation would take place along the same lines of people coming to understand and empathize with one another. And I want to pray the same thing for our country. I ask for healing and reconciliation. We pray for the president, as you command us to do in scripture, that you would use him for good. And we know you tell us that if we turn to you and, and pray and seek your face, that you'll heal our, our land, that you will, you'll heal us. You'll heal us of, of these divisions. So that's what we do this morning. We pray, we turn our face to you, and we ask for healing. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.